Thank you, ladies. There is none like the Lord God, Jehovah God. Turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to be preaching a message on the importance of the church. And while you're finding your place, I want to share an e- email with you. My sister-in-law, Donna Kitchen, who is uh, in our service each week, she uh, sends emails to our home frequently that are really good. And, uh, and so I saved this one and wanted to share it with you today. It's called The Safest Place. The Safest Place. How to stay safe in the world today. Let me give you some ways. Number one, avoid riding in automobiles because they are responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents. Number two, do not stay home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Number three, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Number four, avoid traveling by air, rail, or water because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. So that's 67%. Now, of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in hospitals, so above all else, avoid hospitals. But <clears throat> you'll be pleased to learn that only 0.001% of all deaths occur in worship services in church. And these are usually related to previous physical disorders. (laughs) Therefore, logic tells us that the safest place for you to be at any given point in time is at church. And Bible study is safe too. The percentage of deaths during Bible study is even less. So attend church and read your Bible. It could save your life. Now, we're speaking about the church today. I I was going through a file last night. I came across a little bitty piece of paper, and it said there's three kinds of people in the church. There are the believers, there are the non-believers, and there are the make-believers. And what that means is there are the true, genuine believers in Jesus Christ who love him and follow him, who have been experienced the new birth. Those are the the believers. Then there are the non-believers. Maybe they come with a spouse. Maybe they come with a friend. Maybe they just come because they are interested and maybe they're seeking, but they're not yet there in their lives. And they would admit to you that they have not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. But they attend church, and we're glad that they do. So the believers and non-believers, a third of the make-believers, those are the people that say they're Christians, but they're really not. They pretend, they make-believe they're Christians. They go through the motions of Christians. They do the things, that they've been through the baptismal waters, they've joined the church, and they attend church. But their lives do not reflect that they have a relationship with God. They act one way on Sunday in a different way during the week. So which kind of person are you? Are you a believer, a non-believer, or a make-believer? I trust that we'll all, if we're not in that first group, that we will move into that group and respond to the gospel of Christ as he calls us to come into fellowship with him and into a relationship with him. Now I would like to read the text today. One of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, my passion, as I've shared with you before, is the church. 
The Lord has put such a heavy burden on my heart at a young age in my life that makes me care about the church, makes me love the church, makes me want to serve the church, makes me want to uh, build up the church of Christ with Christ being the builder and I'm just a little construction worker. I'm just a laborer. I'm one who serves. But Lord, the Lord builds His church. And I care about the church. I have a shepherd's heart. God put that in my heart. I care about people. I care about their spiritual lives. I care about their physical lives. I care about every aspect of our families and our church. I care about the people outside the church that need to be a part of the Lord's church. I just have a passion for the church of Jesus Christ. And really, I, I think to at least a, a degree, every believer ought to have a passion about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope by the time we finish this message today, you'll understand why that is true. I'll begin reading in verse 13. Chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking the disciples, his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And I wrote a little note after that verse 20 and I put, This is the most obeyed scripture in all the Bible. That's what he said. He warned that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, remember, later he said, go and tell the whole world, okay? It just wasn't the right time at this point because he, didn't want, he, had a, he was on a time schedule to go to the cross and he didn't want that time schedule to be in any way tampered with. He knew that it was not the time to go and tell everyone that he was the Messiah. But there would be a time when God's work was accomplished and the church was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we have given that commission. So that command there, it doesn't apply in our lives today, okay? We're to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in these moments that we have to share together from the Word today, that you would remind us of the importance of the church. And Lord, that we would not take it lightly, that we would not take it with a grain of salt, that we would be indifferent to the church, Lord, that we would 
just take it or leave it or be casual about our church relationship. But Father, we would take it serious because it is important to you and it is important to us as believers. Teach us, God, from your word today. And I pray if there's anyone in our midst today that's, that's in that category of the non-believers, they know about you just like people in, in this text that are mentioned. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't know him in a relational way, a personal way. They had not submitted their lives to him as their Savior and Lord. I pray, God, that you would transform hearts and lives today and move non-believers into that category, that group, of believers who have been saved by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his holy name. Amen. Let me just, by way, by way of introduction, remind you of the importance of the church. The church is God's plan for evangelizing the world. The church is God's plan for evangelizing the world. That means taking the good news of the gospel to the entire world. It starts where we are, and, it, and, and the, it's across these United States. That's why we are emphasizing an Annie Armstrong Easter offering. That's why part of our cooperative program funds stay in the state of Alabama and do ministry here. Some go goes to our uh, North American Mission Board to do ministry in the United States and Canada and other territories under the auspices of the United States. That's, in, and that's the North American Mission Board. We support those missionaries. And then we support missionaries throughout the world, international missions. And that's why we give uh, to all three of those entities. Because, and that's why we uh, have sent mission groups out of this church and will send others in the future. That's why God has even called out people from this congregation who are serving in other parts of the world as missionaries. It's because we realize that our task is to take the gospel to the world. The church is God's plan for evangelizing the world. Also, the church is God's plan for growing Christians to maturity in Jesus Christ. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That's why we have other organizations in our church centered and built around the Word of God, our children's ministries, our student ministries. We believe that it, the church is God's plan for growing Christians to maturity in Christ. Thirdly, the church is a people that God has called to himself to display his glory. In Ephesians chapter 3, we, Kobe read from uh, another chapter in Ephesians earlier, but in Ephesians uh, chapter, two, chapter 3, notice in the very end of that chapter, the last two verses, I believe it is, the Bible says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God desires to display his glory through the church. His glory is his life, his character. It is his power. He desires to display his glory through his church. Through Alberta Baptist Church, God wants people to see God in us 
people. God wants people to see Jesus in us. He wants to see a transformed life in us. They want to see the power of God being displayed in our lives, in our work, in our ministry that we do. God gets glory from His church. He desires to get glory from His church. God is doing a work in this church. He is transforming lives in this church. He is growing people. He is making disciples and using us to do that in His church. And I'm excited about the work that God is doing in our midst. And then there's a fourth reason for the importance of the church. It's God's plan for evangelizing the world. It's God's plan for growing Christians. It's God, it, is, it is a people that God has called Himself to display His glory. And... And this really relates to the third one. In eternity past, that means before this world was ever brought into existence, God the Father determined to give God the Son, that's Jesus Christ, a redeemed humanity who would forever praise and glorify Him and serve Him perfectly. Now we start, it starts on this earth as God has been from the very beginning of mankind. He has all through the Old Testament as we're reading and through the New Testament and even today, God is calling to himself a redeemed people by grace. But in this church age particularly is he using the church and he is using us and he is calling out people who are called the church to be a part of a redeemed humanity that would forever praise and glorify God and serve Him perfectly. And that perfect service will come when we get to heaven. We will be perfected then. So the church is important. The church is important because it's important to Jesus. Jesus founded the church. In the scripture text we've read today, we see that Jesus is the founder of the church. He is the architect of the church. He is the builder of the church. He is the owner of the church. And he is the Lord of the church. Jesus also purchased the church with his blood, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20, verse 8. It says God purchased the church with his own blood, and Christ is the one who actually did that uh, sacrifice in the blood, and Jesus is God, and so sometimes it's used interchangeably. But we can say it was Jesus who purchased the church with his own blood. Jesus is also... The head of the church, the Bible tells us in Colossians 1.18 and also in Ephesians 5.23. He's the head of the church and we're to submit to the one who is the head of the church. It's not the pastor, it's not the deacons, it's not anybody else in the church. The Jesus is the head of his church. He is the ruler over his church. The Bible also tells us in Ephesians 5.23 that Jesus is the savior of the church. He is our redeemer. He is our Savior. He is the Messiah who came to lay down his life for the sheep. He's also, Jesus also loves the church. He loves the church. We should love it because Jesus loved the church. In Ephesians 5, verse 25. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he loves the church and he loves the church so much that he died for church, the church that we see in that very verse. Don't you think we should love something that, Je that Jesus loved that much? Don't you think we should, if Jesus would die for the church, don't you think it should ha at least have a prominent place in our lives? 
The Bible in Ephesians 5.26 even says that Jesus purifies the church. In Ephesians 5.26, it says that he might sanctify her, meaning the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. Jesus cleanses, he purifies his church through the teaching and, and as we conform in obedience to the word of God, our lives are purified and cleansed from sin. And in verse 27 of Ephesians 5, it says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. God wants his church to be pure. He doesn't want us to be stained by sin. He doesn't want us to be tainted by sin. He doesn't want our testimony to be damaged by sin. He wants us to live holy lives as we studied today in our Sunday school lesson out of 1 Peter, where the Lord, quoting the Old Testament, said that we are to be holy even as he is holy. And then, finally, Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. Ephesians 5, verse 29 tells us this, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So, here we see the importance of the church. It's important because of what it, what it does, and it's accomplished. It is important because it was important to Jesus and we look at what Jesus did for the church and he established the church, then it should be important to us. And by the way, the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church is a people. Now we know that the Bible does describe the church as the building of God. In fact, there are three predominant descriptions of the church given in the Bible. There are many different metaphors used, but three of those are we are the bride of Christ. I won't go into detail because this could be a whole... Another message as we look at these three uh, descriptions of the church. We are the bride of Christ. We see that stated in not specific words, but in the picture given in Ephesians 5. It's trying to say that the relationship of husband and wife and the love between them should be like the love between Christ and his church. And we know that John the Baptist even spoke of Christ as the bridegroom. He said, I'm not the bridegroom. The bridegroom's coming, and he's coming uh, for his bride. And Jesus came to this earth and he established the church and the church is the bride of Jesus Christ and he loves and cares for us. And we have an intimate relationship with him and all that's pictured in the fact that we are the bride of Christ. But also the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. There are many scriptures in 1 Corinthians 12 and also in Romans 12 where it speaks about the church as being the body of Christ He's the head, we're the body, we operate with him and cooperate with him as one unit to function according to his purposes, to carry out his mission. We are his eyes, his hands, his feet, his mouth, and we accomplish his assignments until he returns to this earth. So we are the bride of Christ, we are the body of Christ, and we are the building of God. We're the building of God. We are the building in the sense that he dwells in us. In 1 Corinthians 6, it speaks that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where God, by his spirit, lives in us. And so we are a building in that sense. And this building is continually under construction. Every time a person enters the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, there are another brick or another stone added to God's building. Each Christian becomes another stone and it's a living stone. We are living stones, Peter, 
1 Peter 2.5 describes it in that way. Now that's the introduction. And I'm going to hit the rest of this. I got three points from, uh, I want you to go back to our original text. I'm going to show you three things in here. We're going to look at, first of all, the confession of Peter. The confession of Peter. Secondly, the revelation of God. And thirdly, the declaration of Jesus all about the church. First of all, we read the confession of Peter. Go back to verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now Caesarea Philippi was located 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus with his disciples, he comes and he begins asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He, wanted, he says, Tell me, what, what are people, who, who do people say that I am? The Son of Man is a term of deity that Jesus used for himself. He most often called himself the Son of Man. It reflected his humility. It reflected his submissive spirit and heart in coming into this world, leaving heaven and coming to be our Redeemer and our Savior. He was God in human flesh. He took on humanity on, and came and revealed God to us. And so he said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You know, it's important what you believe about Jesus. Very important. And so in verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. And when Jesus came on the scene, his very first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for you will, or, or you will all likewise perish. Jesus preached repentance just like John the Baptist. Some thought, well, John the Baptist has come back from the dead. He's here again. So some people thought Jesus John the Baptist reincarnated. Others, Elijah, they thought he was Elijah because in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 5 verse 4, uh, there is a prophecy that before the end of times that Elijah would reappear on the earth. And so they thought that Jesus was Elijah that, he, that had reappeared on the earth. And he was considered the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. And they trusted in this promise. And they were looking for this coming again of Elijah. And then, of course, none of those were the right answers. And then he, it says, but still others, Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was another one of those prophets that was way up on the list of preeminence and prominence among the Old Testament prophets. And so some thought he was perhaps Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then in verse 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I, that I am? You see, the effectiveness of the church depends on what it believes about Jesus and who Jesus is. And you can know all about Jesus and not know Jesus. Because these other people, they knew a lot about Jesus, but they didn't know him. Because they hadn't figured out who he was. Notice what Peter says. He becomes the spokesman here. He said to them, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. That means Messiah. He said, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You're the one that has been promised in the Old Testament that we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of God. Is another term for deity. It's used to describe Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. Both refer to His deity. 
Jesus using the first and the other was used of, of descri describing Jesus and it meant that he was God, that he came from heaven. He didn't come from this earth. Yes, he was born of physical birth, but he existed in eternity past as the book of John teaches us in John chapter 1. He, he was with God and he was God. And so he makes this great statement, this great confession, the confession by Peter was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he God? Is he the Son of God to you? If so, then we have the, uh, we are, we are, compelled to obey him because if he is God, then we are to hear, heed what he says and we are to do what he wills and what he wants us to do and, how, and live how he wants us to live. And, and notice, that's the confession of Peter. But notice in verse 16, the revelation by God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona means son of Jonah. So, so Simon Peter was the son of a man named Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He is saying that your natural mind did not reveal to you this truth you just confessed about who I am. He said it was not because you're so intellectual and so smart. Your intellect did not lead you to this conclusion that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't teach this to you. You learned this by the Spirit of God. Notice he says in verse 17, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, spiritual truth is revealed by God. And you cannot receive and understand spiritual truth unless you have a spiritual heart. That's why some of you are sitting here today, probably, thinking, when is this going to get over? When are we going to be done here? How long of a nap do I have to take to endure this? I mean, what we're talking about, you're oblivious to. There are people in this room, if, you're, if this is like most churches throughout our land, there are people that are here that are just here because they're, what we said earlier, they're the believers and the non-believers and the make-believers. And the make-believers just sort of endure it until it's over so they can get on to the next thing in their life for the week or the day. And you see, Jesus says that spiritual truth can only be discerned and understood with spiritual hearts. Now, people that have spiritual hearts are here this morning saying, man, this is good. I'm not talking about the sermon. I'm talking about the Word. This Word is good. God is speaking. I'm learning. I'm learning that, you know, understanding comes... Through, the, through God. The, the Bible was revealed, the truth of revelation was revealed to men who penned the scriptures. We studied about that. And then this truth is understood by us today as our hearts, are, our minds are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter didn't learn this in his own way, in his own will and mind and intellect. He learned it. He learned it because the Spirit had taught him this, had revealed it to him. After he observed the life of Christ, 
The Spirit of God revealed this truth to him. So, we see the confession by Peter, the revelation by God, and then the declaration by Jesus. Verses 18 to 20. Jesus, continuing to speak, says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, he already knew that. Peter knew he was Peter. Why did he say you're Peter? Well, Peter, the name word Peter, name Peter, is a word that means, it's Petros, and it means small stone. He said, you're Peter. You're a small stone. And then he goes on to say, upon this rock, and he uses a word for rock that doesn't mean a small stone. It's the word Petra, and it means huge boulder. Upon this bedrock belief and confession and the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, even upon Jesus himself, I will build my church. I will build my church on you, Peter, and people like you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my church on Jesus Christ, who is the object of your faith. I will build my church on him. The Bible is very clear in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, that, that Jesus is the foundation of the church. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then in the uh, scripture, I think that we read even earlier today out of Ephesians, it's mentioned that the, there's a foundation laid by the, the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation. The truth that was revealed to the apostles and the associates of the apostles, those who, pre who preached what the prophets had taught, they were laying a foundation of truth. Pillar, a pillar of truth that the church would be founded on. And Jesus is the very cornerstone of that foundation. That's why the Apostle Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. The preaching of the crucified Christ was the foundation of the church, the cornerstone of the church. Christ himself is that foundation. The truth of the word of God is all about Jesus from the beginning to the end. And so Jesus declares upon this rock, Upon this bedrock belief of who I am, I'm going to build my church. I'm the foundation of the church. The truth laid by the prophets and, 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 and apostles are the foundation in the sense that they teach about me. And he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. King James says, the gates of hell will not overpower it, will not overcome it. The word that's translated Hades there is a euphemism for death. Now, euphemism is a word that's used that sounds a little bit better than the word that you really mean. It's just like if you refer to, if you can refer to a person as an old maid or you can refer to a person as an unclaimed blessing. The unclaimed blessing is a euphemism for the, for the previous. And there's other illustrations that I could give to you, but sometimes we use nicer words to say something that's not so nice. And, and this is a euphemism, and really it's a euphemism meaning death. The powers of death will not overpower it. Now, if hell certainly cannot overpower Jesus and his church. The worst thing that Satan can do to his church is kill it, the people in the church. 
The worst thing Satan can do to you is just take your life. And what's going to happen if Jesus persecutes his church and martyrs believers and they're taken out of this world, what's going to happen? They're going to come out of that grave one day. The church is going to rise victorious. The church cannot be held in death. Jesus has overcome death. He has overcome sin. And one day, the church of Jesus Christ, the martyrs, those who have been martyred for their faith, as well as others who have died for even natural, by natural causes, are going to come out of that grave and will be resurrected. In fact, when we die, the moment we die, our spirit goes to heaven. So death cannot really overcome the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is declaring that. This is his declaration. I will build my church. We belong to him. The church is his church. As I've said, he's the, he's the builder. He's the architect. He's the foundation. And he's the Lord. He's the head. And we're going to close it here. Hang with me. He said that the gates of hell, the powers of death shall not overpower it. And then notice what he says in verses 19 and 20. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that every time you share the gospel with someone and they respond to that gospel or every time we give an invitation and someone responds and comes to Christ, we open the doors of heaven. We open the doors of heaven to those people. He said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You have the gospel and the gospel is going to open the door of heaven for people to come. And then he says, And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I don't have time to explain that verse fully. But really it relates to a verse also in John chapter 20, verse 23. But what he's saying is that you, the church has the authority to say to a person, based on what you do with Christ, if you receive him or reject him, whether or not you enter heaven or don't enter heaven. And the church also has the authority to say, based on the truth of God's word, this is wrong or this is right. This is a sin or this is something that is good that you can do in the way we're to live. This is how you're to live. Because we have the word of God, and so therefore we have the authority to say what God says. And we have the authority to unlock heaven for those who will receive Jesus Christ. Now, I conclude with this. How do you become part of Christ's church? Well, look a few verses down, beginning in verse 24, and I'm just going to read it, and we're going to end. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You've got to die to self. You've got to, you to renounce your sin, die to self, Come to Christ, take up your cross. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. Give it to Christ, you're going to gain it. And then verse 26, For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will he gain if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. This, these verses tell us how to become a part of the Lord's church. You come to Christ. You renounce your sin and yourself, and you come and you give your life to Christ and receive him and believe on him and trust that what Christ did on the cross is the payment for your sin. That's how you become a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we give our invitation today, that you would draw to yourself those who need to come 
and be born again and receive you, Jesus Christ, to come and live in their lives. I trust you, God, to do this work of conviction. And Lord, that you would prompt people to respond this day by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask in Christ's name, amen.